Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at all protected. I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife, And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Hello, John. How you doing, my friend? We're uh, back at it this week for another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And I'm always happy when we get to record these every week so that I get to talk to you. We always have some interesting conversations, so I'm looking forward to this week's conversation as well. Well, it is a pain being separated the way we are and locked up. I keep driving, going out every day for a ride just to get out of these four walls. But I certainly would like to get back to normal. Well, the good thing is we're still keeping up with all the current events around the world because, as we say in the business, they're still crashing. Unfortunately, you know, some of those investigations are being delayed because of COVID, but we still have to do our job and Hopefully, uh, we're doing that well through our podcast, trying to inform our listeners about issues that deal with aviation safety on a, on a daily basis that you and I are running across all the time because our jobs never stop. So, And we're finding a new way to conduct business. Uh, I think that's given across the world. I mean, it's not just aviation safety. And just a friend of mine was just in here. He flies for a Fortune 500 company, had their corporate jet in here. This is the first trip he's flown in four months. And I asked him when his next trip is. He said the next trip on the schedule isn't until October. And this is a company that has two large aircraft, six pilots, and their flying is now, he just finished this trip. The next trip's in October. And before COVID, they were flying almost every other week in one or both of the airplanes. So it has taken a dramatic turn. It is a little different. Businesses are finding a way to conduct business in a different way. And we talked about it on one of our previous shows about not only commercial aviation, but business aviation. And I I still believe that business aviation and private aviation are going to come back just because as long as the airlines have a problem with COVID control, People wear masks. You and I have seen in the news recently all these people that are getting off. And I just saw that Delta has created a hit list, if you will, of people who refuse to wear masks. They're getting kicked off the airplane and they're put on a blacklist. They can never fly on Delta Airlines. And that's how serious they're taking this. And that's why I think business aviation and private aviation is going to make a bigger comeback because that gives people more control over their environment. Yes, I know. understand American has done the same thing with the blacklist, and I wouldn't be surprised if United's in the same position. Yeah, I think they're getting there. Yeah, my daughter works at Logan Airport, and she tells me that all the employees at the airport are complaining about the number of passengers that were getting off American Airlines flights, especially their Miami to Boston flight, with no masks on. So now they're starting to enforce the mask policy, and also enforcing the uh, 14-day 
confinement, self-confinement. And now you have to fill out a form if you come into Logan from any one of, except 10 different states, you have to fill out a form where you're going, phone numbers to contact you, and they're following up on it. So they're getting serious. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we talked about this on a previous show, and I'm traveling again this next week. You know, one of the things that bothered me was you got all these signs in the airport, yet a third of the population in that airport didn't have a mask on, and they could care less about it. I didn't see any enforcement by the local airport gendarmes to enforce those mask policies. And I don't think that you can ask the airlines to be policing all the terminal walkways. It's one thing when they get into the gate area where it's controlled by the airline, but the free space in there, that shouldn't be the responsibility of the airline. So where's the airport in all of this? So these are the kinds of issues that we're going to continually have to deal with. And that's why I think other segments of aviation are uh, are going to at least prosper and come back faster just because of this control. And we were talking about the mask rule and the propensity for people not to wear them. You and I had this brief discussion, and that is the last few flights that I've been on listening to the briefing. If I'm required to wear a mask on the airplane, and of course the flight attendants go through their safety briefing and they say in the event of a loss of pressurization, the mask is going to drop, Pull the mask to your face, put the lanyard over your head or the band over your head. Do I take my mask off first to put my other mask on or do I put my mask over the mask? I haven't heard any clarification. I haven't heard anybody talk about that. And these aren't pressure breathing units, as you know, John, because, you know, you've had to replace them throughout your career when you're working for the airlines. This isn't pressure breathing. These masks don't force oxygen into your nose and your mouth. I mean, you're drawing it in and there's not a lot of volume to that air. So now you have this mask on, especially some of these paper masks or these N95s or these real bulky masks. What are you supposed to do? Yeah, nobody's talked about that. And if we go back to the force feeding the oxygen into our body, which it doesn't, most people don't realize that if after you put that mask on your face, if you were to take a big gulp of air, just a big inhale, most of that air that you just sucked in is bypassing the mask by a little filter, a little round filter that's on the front of that mask that allows cabin air to come in and mix with that oxygen. So we often get questions about would the oxygen mask have saved people, like, uh, for example, in ValueJet. And the answer is no, because upwards of 90% of what you breathe in is bypassing the mask that's coming in through that filter. And so it's cabin air coming in through the filter into your lungs. So if there's contaminants yeah. in the cabin, you're going to have those contaminants in your lungs. Yeah. So I, I'd be interested to see what the airlines have to say and the FAA has to say, because like I said, I haven't heard any change in those safety briefings. And again, you have a very widespread demographic of people flying on the airplane from young to old. This could create a level of confusion. Do I put the mask over the mask? Do I take my other mask off? Do I put the oxygen mask on? What am I supposed to do? And you may not have time to be fumbling around trying to figure it out, especially if there's a rapid decompression and things like that at altitude. You're expected to get that mask on and get it on now. If you're at 35 or 38,000 feet, you only have seconds to get that mask on. Most people yeah. don't realize that, and they don't make that pretty clear in the, in the announcement, that if it happens at altitude, you need to be moving quickly and putting that mask on. Yeah, yeah, you don't have time to think. And the other thing is, you know, when they talk about you pull the mask down, I can't remember the exact word, sharply or whatever, but you can't just pull the mask to your face because there's a lanyard tied to it. And you and I are very familiar with the lanyards because those lanyards are tied to the oxygen generator that's in the overhead passenger service unit. Of course, those oxygen generators were the discussion point and the cause of an in-flight fire on ValueJet 592 that crashed in the Florida Everglades. But You've got to use that lanyard when you pull the mask. you got to pull that lanyard because it pulls a, a little bayonet pin to cause 
the oxygen generator then to create this oxygen. If you don't pull that lanyard hard enough, then you're not going to have an oxygen flow. And again, it's these little things that if you don't really understand or you don't know, next thing you know, you think you're breathing air. And like you said, you're not breathing oxygen. You're breathing cabin air coming through a filter that's still polluted with all sorts of bad stuff, including toxic fumes. Yes. Yeah, they're not very clear when they tell you that to pull the mask down. Fortunately, those lanyards are pretty short, so you have to give it a tug if you want the mask to come. But if you're a six-footer sitting in a seat, you could put the mask on without pulling on that lanyard very hard. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's these little things. And, you know, I notice them every time I travel and I try to pick these up. And then all of a sudden I start going, man, I don't remember anybody telling, do I put the mask on over my mask? Since they are very staunch now, and the only time you can take your mask off temporarily is to eat or drink. And again, (laughs) that too is counterintuitive because every time you touch your mask, you're touching your face. And what we've been told now for the last four or five months is don't touch your face. And you pull the mask down, you pull the mask up, you pull the mask down, you pull the mask up. And you're contributing to the contaminants in your mask because who knows what's on your tray table now or the tray they delivered or the package of food you just opened up and things like that. So, I mean, it's a real challenge and it takes a lot of thinking these days. The only good thing, John, is that they're coming out with more information about air circulation in the airplanes. I saw that United Airlines now has increased airflow in the aircraft when the airplane's on the ground during boarding and deplaning. They figured that if they increase the airflow during those two processes, they're circulating more air through the HEPA filters on the airplane so that when they do close the cabin door, the environment is cleaner because then they slow the air circulation down in flight. The HEPA filters do their job, but they're trying to pass a greater volume of air to keep the air clean during that probably the dirtiest parts of of the boarding process. I, I would agree that that is probably the most time when passengers are straining to put their bags up in the overhead sometimes and exhaling uh, possibly contaminants that get around the mask or if their mask slips off, can get into the cabin. Fortunately, yep. that airflow inside airplanes comes into the cabin through the ceiling and exits at the floor. So that tends to keep the forward and aft movement down to four or five rows. Yeah. So that that is a little bit helpful. Not if you're in one of those four or five rows, it isn't. But And see, a lot of people were always under the belief, and it, that was the way the, the air circulated years ago, was in a circular motion front to back, if I remember right. And people have always thought that that's the way it circulates now, and not with the newer generation airplanes and the circulation systems and the HEPA filters and everything else. And I heard somebody uh, talk about the fact, I think Boeing or Airbus, that said, in a lot of cases, the environmental air in an airplane is cleaner than in an operating room. Just because it's recirculated every two to three minutes, it goes through HEPA filters and everything else, which is more so than a lot of times in a hospital operating room. Yeah, and, and not all of it has to go back through, too, because some of it comes down through the floorboards and goes into the cargo compartments to keep them warm, especially that whichever compartment is designated for carrying pets. Normally, it's the forward cargo compartment, but some airplanes, it's the aft. And so cabin air that's comfortably heated is vented down into the cargo compartment to help our pets. So people that ship their pets in those containers down below, they put in specific spots for both temperature and for pressurization. So the cabin system, pressurization system and flow has dual purpose at that point. It provides pressurized air down into the cargo compartment as well as heated air. It's not hot, but it's enough to sustain you Uh in the cargo compartment. And then what doesn't go out that way gets recirculated around inside the cabin. Temperature 
And one of the things, John, with while we're talking about airplanes and safety and that kind of stuff, you know, of course, we we tend to overlook happened in the past. Here in the United States, we seem to know like the value jets, the TWA 800s of the world and that kind of stuff. But a little known or at least remembered fact is the fact that tomorrow will mark the 25th anniversary of the Concorde accident in France, Air France. That was really the accident that led to the demise of supersonic travel worldwide. And it was a sad state of affairs with that accident. Of course, Continental initially bore the brunt of a lot of litigation because it was claimed that a piece of engine cowling had fallen off on an airplane, a Continental airplane that was taking off just prior to the Concorde. Concorde then took off ran over this piece of metal. There was a metal strip the size of kind of like a metal ruler and cut the tire. The tire then turned to shrapnel, breached the fuel tank and caused a flaming ball of flying wreckage. Of course, later on, it was determined that it wasn't. The airplane was overweight. The tires were bad and, and a variety of other things. But that really led to the end of Concorde as we knew it at that time. But now we see a resurgence by not only one, but multiple manufacturers who are coming back to supersonic transport design and flight. You know, that that accident has always been uh, one that sticks in my craw for a number of reasons. One of which is it's the first time that major accident investigation authorities went beyond the hangar doors and looking at what happened to the airplane. So... If that accident were in the U.S., we probably would have said that an, an engine was improperly repaired and that, the, that a piece fell off of it and caused a tire to fracture, and that would have been the end of it. And at least yeah. in this case, the French went beyond it and dug in there a little bit and actually not only identified who did the work, but also identified that a maintenance supervisor told the person to accomplish the task not in accordance with the procedures to, in order to get the job done. In the U.S., I fought this battle at, at the NTSB. In fact, on our value jet where both of us were on there, I had to fight with, with the head of aviation just to get value jet included in the uh, probable cause. Yep. And that was a big bloodbath between myself and, uh, and two staff members above your pay grade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's sad because, you know, with all the infighting, I mean, you're coming from a background of experience. And, you know, when you're trying to educate folks that have never stepped foot in a hangar to turn a wrench or anything else and never really been exposed and can trying to convince these folks of how critical even the smallest task or action is, there's a lot that gets lost. And trust me, we've talked about your passion as a mechanic over the years, and I've been there to watch you cry because of your passion for your craft. And, you know, when you try to transfer that passion and an explanation to people that are very indifferent and basically sometimes indignant, it's very frustrating because that's the safety message that gets lost. And it's, it's sad, especially when you and I had to deal with the bureaucrats, not only in our agency, but, of course, other places. And it's just very, very frustrating because you shake your head thinking, how are we going to enhance aviation safety with folks like this? It's difficult. I tell people when I give my talks to maintenance people that there's no such thing as an unimportant job in aviation. And I like to point to a couple of examples one is we had a major airline that had was changing their seat pitch out. And they decided to use a contract MRO who hired maintenance students, people who are in, in school to be maintenance technicians, but are nowhere near finished. And they hired them to do the work for them. And nobody would have realized the problem until one day in flight, the passengers moved around on a row of seats, and it broke loose from the floor and tumbled over. And then they got to looking at the airplanes that have been converted because they realized this airplane had just been converted. And they started to find problem after problem after problem 
with the job that was done. And that's just one example. There's a, I've got several others that I use when I, when I talk to people about the jobs that they're going to be doing in aviation and how important they are. I actually was involved in a near fire. Technically, it was a fire. The wires shot it out, but it didn't go anywhere because somebody had changed the, uh, a coffee maker on an airplane, and they took the lines off, and the lines didn't go back on right, and they, they pumped a bunch of water into the belly. And, of course, if, when you do something like that, it's always going to land where it's going to do the most damage. It landed on, a, on some 115-volt uh, wires. It shot it out. It must have been contaminated maybe with dirt and debris or even coffee. But anyway, it got conductive and shot it out and burned a bunch of wires. It was on the ground. Had that been in flight, the outcome might have been entirely different. So nothing that you do on an airplane is unimportant, and people have to keep that in mind. Pilots, flight attendants, mechanics, everybody, especially management, because they're pushing quick turnarounds, and we know what that's like, trying to turn yes. a big airplane around in 20 minutes. Lots of things get missed, and lots of things get pushed. So it, it's quite a challenge. And it's the little things. and. We've harp on, you know, all these little technical details. And again, I, I mean, when I'm perusing Facebook and some of the other aviation blogs and I see all these armchair experts chiming in about the 737 MAX and everything else, and it, I just shake my head because these guys are not speaking from a position of experience. They're speaking from a position of emotion without any basis in fact. And even to this day, after you and I, and we've gotten some great feedback from our dissection of the Lion Air report, people understood because we drew them to the proper interpretation of the facts and putting things in context rather than making a sexy story out of it. But like anything else, whether it's politics today or, or acts investigation, these people, it's the conspiracy theory. It's the, I know more than you, and it's an emotional response. And it's the details that they aren't looking at. It's the obvious picture or, you know, the belief that, well, that's not really true. Well, hey, don't take my word for it. These are the facts, <laughs> you know? I'm just helping point you in the right direction so that you keep all these facts in, in context. And trying to explain those facts to people that don't want to hear them, don't understand them, all of a sudden now, a lot of these regulators and decision makers are making uninformed decisions because they didn't understand the context of the facts. Yeah, telling people, I mean, how many times have we both said it, not only us, many other people have said that accident investigations are driven by facts. Yeah. And it takes a lot of discipline on the part of people like you and I to stay focused on the facts because it's very easy to let personal opinion, your own and other people's personal opinion, drift into the story and yep. impact on the outcome. But you've got to stay as an investigator and as a person looking to f find the truth about a cause of an event to stay focused down on what actually happened, what impacted on the pilot, on the mechanic, to cause him to make a mistake. We do a fairly good job of looking at the cockpit crew. You know, just this one this past week with the Atlas Air accident, they went yes. to great lengths to talk about the inadvertent hitting of the go-around button and trying to figure out how that happened. That has never been done for maintenance accidents. Never. Yeah. No. And it's those little things. You've seen it. You've been there. You've had to investigate them. You have to come up with a rationale, a logical rationale, to come up with a logical conclusion. And if you only target certain things, well, what are you missing that contributed? When we look at this Atlas Air, the board went into it with uh, their human factors folks and the ops folks, like you said, trying to figure out how to go around button on the on the auto throttles got hit and all of a sudden they had an increase in power the first officer had a lot of training issues he really didn't belong in the front end of any airplane let alone that airplane he misinterpreted physiological sensations versus data information that was being fed to him and 
made some uh, improper control inputs. The other pilot, the captain, was distracted momentarily doing other things. By the time he got plugged in and was questioning what was going on, you had an airplane at 3,000 feet that was, you know, gyrating wildly in the air until they lost it. But one of the things, and again, I don't know if I missed it in going through listening to the board meeting, and, and I haven't seen the final report yet, but we all, as pilots and mechanics, have been trained not to take things in isolation. You get an indication. Okay, the indication says you got low hydraulic pressure. You don't just start going, okay, well, we got low hydraulic pressure. Let's just add more hydraulic fluid. You got to figure out why you have low hydraulic pressure, if in fact you do. Is it a gauge problem? Is it a piping problem? Is it a pump problem? You can't just go, well, you know, we'll just throw some more hydraulic fluid in there and that'll fix the problem. And one of the things that I noticed was when the first officer kept telling the captain that the airplane was stalling, and that's why he was pushing the nose down, and this is an aerodynamic stall, he kept pushing the nose down, and the captain, and they got into basically, I won't say it was a fight, but they're putting in opposite control inputs, which was fighting each other. You know, there are other indications that will tell you whether or not the airplane is in a stall condition. One, of course, is airspeed, but two is the stick shaker which is an audible sound because the control yoke vibrates to get your attention that, hey, look, you're approaching critical airspeed or at least angle of attack where this airplane is going to come out of the sky. I never saw a whole discussion. I saw the discussion focus on how the toga buttons got hit inadvertently, but I didn't, I didn't see all of those other discussions, the, the human elements that Again, I haven't seen the final report. They may be buried in there and maybe in a group chairman report. But those are also critical facts that translate down the line, not just in big airplanes, but all the way down to the smallest of aircraft in the general aviation fleet. Yes. And, you know, you use the word toga. Explain that for our audience. Well, the toga being there are buttons on the thrust lever handles that's the takeoff go-around switches. So with an auto throttle system, if you hit those toga buttons during the course of flying an approach, the auto throttles will take the power up to a predetermined value automatically so that the pilot can focus on flying the airplane and, and not having to worry about pushing those thrust levers up and trying to monitor engine instruments to determine whether or not the power is properly set. And in this particular instance, while executing the, the approach segment, apparently the system got armed and then got activated inadvertently. And it, it had happened in instrument meteorological conditions where pilots must rely on cockpit instruments to see their relationship and their situational awareness to the earth. And physiology is very strong under those conditions where if the airplane accelerates, doesn't have to climb, just accelerates, you may get a sensation that the airplane is climbing. Or if the airplane is in level flight but turning, you get a sensation that the airplane is climbing or things like that. And that physiology is critical in all aspects of flying. Yeah, one of the, one of the things I often thought that if we had the NTSB and other organizations like the NTSB that looked at that physical aspects of the job that you do that would have a huge impact on maintenance. Because I've worked on more than one system where you're hanging off the airplane like a monkey with your arm in the hole and you're feeling your way around inside because you can't look and have your arm in the same hole. Yeah. So the airplanes were poorly designed Many years ago, they've gotten a lot better. The 777 was the first airplane that really took into consideration the people having to do the work in a big way. But it's those other airplanes are still out there, and they're, they're a problem to work on because the engineers that designed them never took into consideration when something breaks, how do we fix it? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing when you're building it because you got the wing skins off. You can get into any, any part of the wing. Now you bolt on that wing skin and something happens, and like you said, now you have a little inspection plate that you can only do one thing at a time, 
And who knows if you're doing it right or wrong? Who knows if you've got the right part in your hand when you stick your hand up there? And then how are you expected to change it or make sure that it meets the standards that are necessary for proper operation? And like you said, while we have gotten better designing airplanes in an ergonomic way for maintenance technicians to work on the airplane, we still have all sorts of issues on airplanes. A fuel tank. I mean, yeah, you get in the fuel tank, you put on the proper equipment. I mean, the fuel tank on a big airplane's big. But you go to that same fuel tank that's in a wet wing on a, on a uh, Mooney, and all of a sudden now, you're, you're sticking your arm in a hole. You can't look in there. You can't stick a flashlight, your eyes, and your arm in there trying to figure out why there's a leak coming off the back of the wing. Yeah, I was blessed during part of my time. In the airlines, we had a guy that we called Jake the Snake, and he could climb inside wings and snake his way up there, which is not an easy task. And he would get cut up pretty good sometimes, but he had the ability to get in there and get to some of those areas and fix them. But boy, that is a big challenge. Yeah. And those are the kinds of little things. Those are the devils in the detail that, you know, sometimes you don't, we don't get to read about, we don't really ferret those out, or we get focused on certain aspects. And physiology, the board came out with a probable cause that at least the first officer had suffered the physiological effects of somatographic illusion. And there are a number of vestibular type illusions that occur in aviation because you're working in a three, partially four-dimensional world. And I did an accident that you and I were both involved in, U.S. Air 1016. Yep. And that really brought to light the issue of somatographic illusion in a big airplane. Now, it had happened previously in big airplanes, and who knows how many times it's happened in little airplanes, but because we don't have a cockpit voice recorder, we don't have a flight data recorder on these general aviation aircraft, we will never know how many pilots who have been on an approach in IMC-type conditions or at night who started the approach, then pulled up, and then you know the airplane dove into the ground for, quote, unknown reasons. Could it have been that they suffered these physiological effects thought that they were climbing too fast or too high, the pitch attitude was too great, and they pushed over, and next thing you know, they flew it into the ground. We won't know that with little airplanes, and Atlas Air gave us a clue through the cockpit voice recorder and the discussions between the two pilots that this was an effect that was happening, and we basically saw the same thing with U.S. Air 1016 because the cockpit voice recorder had a statement by the captain to the first officer who was the flying pilot that gave that away. And then we saw it with the flight flight data recorder data that supported it. And these are the kinds of things that, you know, are we doing a good enough job not only identifying it, which we did with Atlas Air in 1016, but how do we then translate this through all aspects of aviation? Because it's not just big airplane flying that uh, that pilots have this uh, illusion. Yes. You know, there's a lot of them. And sometimes it gets lost by just coming under the heading of situational awareness, which covers a lot of it, but it's not just situational awareness. You're a pilot. You're supposed to be in front of the airplane you're flying, not flying from the last row of seats. And when I look at that Atlas report, that's exactly what I see. I see the Captain wasn't flying, the, the first officer was flying, and the captain wasn't home for part of the trip. He was someplace yeah. else. And then, under critical situation, he never really took positive control of the airplane. You got two guys fighting each other, you know, trying to gain control. Nobody was ever in control of the airplane. In those last few minutes, that's true. And so, with all of these kinds of things, now you take that to a general aviation environment, where now you're single pilot. And you're trying to have to overcome all of these things that are going on physiologically. You still have to fly the airplane. Somebody may be talking to you, air traffic controls, talking in your ear. You may, you may have passengers on the airplane. They're asking you what the heck's going on. They may be screaming in the back because they don't like the roller coaster ride that you've just created for them. Now, all of a sudden, you become overwhelmed 
with trying to do all of these different things that your brain cannot process, you know, all at the same time. Yes. You know, maybe we ought to do a show. Maybe we, when you listen to, to the NTSB and other authorities, when they talk about these phenomenon and the, and the FAA, I don't think they ever put it in terms that the general aviation pilot can understand. And do they get the same kind of reaction that we got in 1016? Probably not, because the speed's not there, unless you got a real high-performance little airplane. All pilots need to know this stuff, and it's out there for them, but not many of them pay attention to it. So maybe we could do a show that, that dedicates ourselves to just talking about these, I'll call them special conditions, that yeah. pilots need to be aware of. Yep, I've got uh, a number of folks that we can bring on, human performance, human factors, experts. My office partner here in Colorado is an aviation psychologist. He's also a pilot, and he can bring those kinds of perspectives because that's the education part of this. And just because it happens in a big airplane and general aviation pilots go, well, that's a, it, that's a big airplane. That'll never happen to be. That is simply simply not true. It's a false premise. It's a false statement and definitely a false belief because there is nothing that happens in a big airplane that can happen in a small airplane or vice versa. A windshear. How many, I wonder how many little airplanes have, have crashed and nobody realized that they may have penetrated a windshear. Yep. Flying on the edge of a storm and got caught in a windshear. Well, I'm sitting here in Colorado. I, I had the tower frequency up. They're landing to the east. The wind was relatively benign. We got some stuff building up over the Rocky Mountains right now, our afternoon thunderstorms. It's 85 degrees. It's humid, so I know it's going to rain here. And the tower was saying, yeah, we had a, uh, a Falcon 2000 land. They were reporting that they had a wind shift. They were landing on 1-2. They had a wind shift out to uh, 355 degrees, and the wind blossom to like 15 knots and then it it dissipated it disappeared airplanes landed and somebody said yeah we got a wind shear on final because the, the i mean it's constantly in motion what's taking place in the environment and again if you have a recording device on an airplane that can monitor it and regurgitate it to investigators you can see the trends of the airplane but you know you're flying a cessna 172 you're flying a piper saratoga you're the only pilot in the aircraft. There is no recording device. Next thing you know, the airplane gets into a sinker and guy crashes and unfortunately is killed. He's not there to tell you, I got into a sinker and, you know, I didn't have enough power to get out of it. Next thing you know, the airplane hit the ground. And we see that all the time. And that's why education and being on top of your game for general aviation pilots is so critical. And it all starts during flight instruction. I don't care what level of flight instruction, whether you're a student pilot or an ATP, you've got to constantly maintain that high level of vigilance because we are working in such a dynamic environment every time we get in an airplane. Yes, you need to have all your senses. You need to be on your game. I mean, there's lots of different ways of phrasing it, but the bottom line is you have to be engaged mentally, yep. physically. You have to be alert. And it's not so easy to do that for extended periods of time. You have to really stay focused. And I'm afraid many of the accidents that we've been forced to look at, they're not on their game. They're not paying attention the whole time they're flying and actually before and after for a little bit, especially before. I mean, we've talked about this a couple of times in recent shows, but I still see it. I just saw it. Uh, I was at an airport on Monday, Tuesday of this week, just hanging around watching the airport, and I watched some people doing their pre-flights. And it's a, a lick and a promise. They're not doing doing everything that they should be doing. Pull the airplane out of a T-hanger, and bing, bang, it was done. I said, you know what? That's not the way it's supposed to work. Yep. And you recall from when we worked together on U.S. Air 1016, you were working for the airline at the time, but you were representing the maintenance techs, the, the machinists there. And if you recall, during the course of that investigation, while we understood the environment that they flew into, that was a wind shear environment, there was thunderstorm off the end of the runway, some of the other things that really started to divert the focus away from how the flight crew 
reacted to the wind shear. Of course, the somatographic illusion because they were in IMC conditions in the final segment of the approach. But as you recall, one of the big elements of that was the dependency on an automated system on the airplane that malfunctioned or wasn't programmed correctly to identify a wind shear environment that the airplane had flown into. Yes, I remember. And it was because of the flap configuration and, and how the system was set up. If the airplane was in a certain landing configuration, you would inhibit these critical warnings and things like that. And, of course, the crews were all trained to these warnings. Well, now it's like Pavlov's dog. Unless that dog bone is out there or the monkey is waiting for the banana, you're not thinking of any other thing except waiting for that, that alert. And if the alert doesn't come, then it's presumed you're clear, when in fact they were in a perfect environment for a wind shear. And in fact, they were. They were in an F3 wind shear during the latter stages of that approach and then the attempted missed approach go around. Right. And the, uh, the alert system was biased out, which is uh, one of the terms that we use. Essentially, what it means is when the flaps were in transition and when they decided to go around, you raise the flaps. Right. The flaps were on their way up, and while they're in motion, the safety system for for wind shear is biased out. It's not working. Unattended. Yeah, unintended consequences. And now you have the pilots flying what they believe is a normal missed approach go-around profile and speed, when in fact they should have been flying a wind shear escape maneuver. Yes. Low-speed ailerons, normal and normal. Rudder travel pitch field. Nav exterior lights. Yeah. Servo control. Nine. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Hello. Seat belt no Emergency exit minimum cabin alarm. Well, I, you know what? We covered an awful lot of ground here that we're going to need to expand upon on other shows because there's a, a lot to be said on decision making, on situational awareness, on all these spatial phenomenon that occur to the human being and the environment and the same thing in the maintenance hangar a lot of things happen to maintainers and we'll get people in to talk about that as well you know fatigue is one of the big ones for both pilots and mechanics and i don't think across the board we haven't done enough and fatigue is you know starting to rear its ugly head again while we think we've addressed it and and put a lot of things in place a friend of mine who uh, runs a big flight department, corporate flight department, just had an audit. And the audit group came in and said, you need to change your fatigue policy. Well, I've reviewed their fatigue policy. They've got an outstanding fatigue policy, crew duty days, exceptions when there's weather and things like that. It's very robust. And in some circumstances, it's even more robust than what the regulations and the airlines require. And now you have an independent auto group who's trying to make work for themselves to tighten up a flight department that has a very good fatigue policy. They literally want flight crews to provide a journal of what they've done the three days previous to reporting on duty. I said, you tell them to pound sand. You're going to have all sorts of issues. One, you take the professionalism out of being a professional pilot, too, I am not going to tell you what I did the last three days prior to reporting to duty because that's privacy issues. How are you going to protect all of that? And what I do on my time is no one else's business, including my employer. I have a responsibility to show up for work in a position of fit to fly. That means I haven't had an excessive amount of alcohol. I've gotten the appropriate rest. I show up for work. I'm ready to go do my professional job. And now all of a sudden, when it comes to a point where, you know what, that's out of control. Because how is that journaling going to promote whether you're fit to fly, you're fit for flying that particular day when you get into your duty cycle? Now, you and I have seen this, and we questioned it with the Connie Coletta accident that I did down in Guantanamo Bay, where you have military pilots who go play weekend warrior. They fulfill their mission to the United States government and the military. So they may be flying all. They have to fly for the commercial carrier on Monday. All of a sudden now, you're not counting all of that military duty time and flight time. 
And so you're fatigued over a 24-hour period, especially these long-haul transport guys. And in one of the instances that we examined, these guys were flying 24-hour missions in a C-5A. They land, they go home, they get sleep, they report for their job the next day at, at one of the commercial airlines, and they're already on the backside of the fatigue clock because that wasn't counted against their duty time and you know just a restful period. Those are special circumstances. Those are things like that. But I told these guys, I said, I wouldn't put out a journal. I'm not telling anybody what I did three days before I showed up for work. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm afraid we're, they're getting carried away because, again, okay, so now I've journaled to my boss that I did all of these things. And he goes, well, you only got eight hours of rest in three days. Yeah, so what? <laughs> Are you going to take me off the trip? Are you going to expect me to, to stop doing what I'm doing? Yeah, but the eight hours were just before I came to the front door. Exactly. You know, so there's a lot of variables in there. John, I mean, I can't tell you. I think I was probably in my single-digit age bracket the last time I slept eight hours. I mean, my normal sleep cycle when I get sleep, unless I'm really tired, is about five to six hours on a really good day when I can, because I'm tired, I've come off a trip or changed time zones, I may be sleeping seven, but that's, those are rare events. That is not consistent, but that's just the way I'm wired. And so if somebody said, well, hell, Greg, you only, you only slept five hours, you know, each night for the last three nights. Well, that's my normal sleep cycle. Yes. And if I'm not around to justify that, and nobody's around to tell them that that's my normal sleep cycle, then they're going to say that I was fatigued. So more, more problems to sort through. All right, we can carry that on an additional show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know that we covered a lot. Uh, we hit on a lot. I always love having these discussions with you because a lot of these discussions that you and I have, John, and you know, we've, we do this offline as well, and that is, you know what, that's a forgotten thing. That's a forgotten subject. That's a forgotten discussion. And our job is to try and bring those discussions back to the forefront and then identify new discussions like the masks. I am serious about having flight attendants or, or the airlines or even the FAA folks send us an email at our email at flightsafetydetectives with an S at gmail.com and tell us if, in fact, they've changed the briefings to accommodate people wearing masks when, when the aircraft masks drop. Because the last three flights I've been on, I never heard that. So I don't know if something has come out since the last time I flew, or maybe this is a call to action that they've got to revamp the briefings currently, you know, whether it's temporary or permanent, as long as people are wearing masks on the airplane. Well, you'll get to hear it firsthand yourself. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be on an airplane next week, so I'll see what they say about it. And that means, wonder if that means changing all the passenger briefing cards, too. Oh, boy. It probably would. Yeah, because everything is reiterated on the briefing card. So, well, it's always good to talk to you, my friend. Uh, I can't wait till we get in the studio together and, and actually, you know, throw stuff at each other and make faces and uh, keep it entertaining. But while we're doing this, hopefully our listening audience is, is getting some benefit out of our discussions. We've had some great email feedback. We do greatly appreciate it. We're going to be talking about a variety of things in the next uh, upcoming shows as well, based on those emails. And we do appreciate the support. And I think it's fair for us to at least announce, John, that we have uh, a great PR woman who takes very good care of us, um, is able to write all of the briefs about the upcoming shows and that kind of stuff. And we found out that we just broke the 100,000 download mark. So I hope that this is the step to greatness to help us expand the show, enhance the show, take it to places that you and I have talked about taking this show. And, of course, getting sponsors to, to join us with that journey because it is a journey and it takes a lot of time and financial resources. But we and you and I have always believed this and we believed it when we first started the show. And that is that this is our way of giving back in the industry, talking about these things. You know, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable, it doesn't matter. 
we're trying to bring awareness and our listeners are helping us bring that awareness out, giving us ideas for shows, identifying issues that they want to hear more about or even telling us about issues that we don't really know about, but they're seeing on a daily basis in their particular roles in aviation. So it's great for us. I think it's great for the listeners, and we're going to continue to to try and do our job as best we can. Yes, and maybe save a life or two. Yep. Well, that's what it's all about, John, is just making people aware so that they're smarter and more informed about things that are happening in aviation. So with that being said, I will uh, make sure to give you the last word since I shoot off my mouth and I start the show. (laughs) Well. Thank everybody. Thank you all for listening to us. As Greg said, we always could use some support, additional support to help make this show bigger and better. And above all else, to everybody, fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening. At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com careers and apply now.